0: Welcome to the gang, you know, the one you never ask to be a part of. You are listening to the Grief Gang podcast with me, your host, Amber Jeffrey. This podcast has been created to tackle the tough but important conversations around grief with authenticity, realness and having a laugh whilst we're at it. Look, we're all going to experience grief at some point in our life, in some way or another. So it's good to talk about it so that it's not much of a nightmare when it comes knocking at our doors. Grief can be incredibly lonely and isolating, but you don't have to feel lonely alone. On this podcast, you will hear various different stories and experiences, ones that will uplift you, inspire you, break your heart, mend your heart and get you asking yourself some big questions. Some of these stories on my own some are from the wonderful growing grief gang community and some are from the incredible guest interviews you will most likely cry (laughs) i hope somewhere along the line you can get a giggle in but i promise you you will learn something i haven't got a clue what you'll take away but i know you will take away something so this might be weird to say given the context but happy listening So, Julie, well, one, thank you so much for joining me here today on the Grief Gang podcast. I have been a longtime admirer of you, your work, the way you deliver and the way you talk online. And I, I distinctively remember, like, when I found you and was like just blown away and taken away just by how well, how much you were educating me. And I really thought I knew. Already quite a fair bit about death and dying. I was like, "Oh no, I know, I know, sweet fuck all, like it's sign nothing." <laughs> um, so, Julie, can you just tell the grief gang listeners um, who you are and what is it that you do? So, yes, hi, I'm Julie.
1: Uh, Julie McFadden is my <laughs> is my full name. Um, on social media, I go by Hospice Nurse Julie, and I'm a palliative and hospice care nurse who has you know i just started social media probably a year and a half ago just educating about death and dying and what hospice is what palliative care is what death looks like i mean all all things death and dying and it's it's taken on it's taken on a life of its own which is like really exciting because i wasn't sure if people would be into it cuz you know in my day to day life people are not necessarily into talking to me about what I do on a daily basis. So it's been really cool to see like a, a group of you know people coming together and wanting to learn and know and meeting people like you who are also doing the same thing, it's amazing
0: it is it's, it's it's a whole I feel like the whole space in itself has just taken on a whole different trajectory of itself and it's so interesting you say there of you know how in your day-to-day life and your in your work that people don't really enjoy talking about it and so it is nice to have these places to turn to um and I'll get into more and I just love to know yeah more of the origin story of that but I want to know a bit of how and why did you get into this line of work Julie what what made you and how old were you? You when you um, started into hospice and palliative care work. I'm
1: 40 now. I think I was probably 32ish. I don't know exactly, but around like my early 30s. But I've been a nurse um, since my mid 20s. So I've been a nurse for about 15 years, and I was an ICU nurse for many years. And I never once thought about hospice in the beginning of my nursing career. I had a whole different view of what I thought I was going to do, or what I thought I liked. And, um, you know, it was really hard for me at first, because as an ICU nurse, it was like, I purposely got this big, I felt like this big deal job at this amazing, you know, the number one hospital in the country in the ICU, like, it it was amazing, amazing experience. I learned so much. But after a, a couple years of that, my opinion of what I was doing really changed. I was like, I'm so unhappy. I can't do this. I feel like we're doing a disservice, not to everybody, but to a lot of people in the ICU. We weren't talking about the truth, which was this person's going to die. Um, And if, if we know that for, for fact, which I think, I know everyone can say, you never know. You never know. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, we kind of do know at least a little bit, you know, like this person's likely not going to survive. So if they're likely not going to survive, why are we not selling, saying this? And so the person in the family can choose how this person dies, right? Do they die in the hospital? Do they die at home? How, like how, uh, and I just felt like we were doing a disservice to so many people. So because of that, that started me thinking about, there has to be a different way to do this. Like, I'm so unhappy here. There has to be a different way. Uh, which led me down this like long, windy path to eventually going into being a hospice nurse. And um, it, it, yeah, and it was a huge learning curve there, too. Probably a good year or so before I was like, holy shit, this is amazing. This is amazing. Like our bodies are truly amazing. It's not depressing. Um of course, it's sad. Like, I can empathize and sympathize oh, with cool. losing the their loved ones. Yeah. But I just know the other end of it, right? The other end is, like, they still die, but they're dying in a hospital bed hooked to a bunch of machines. It's, like... You know, so that's what got me into being a hospice nurse.
0: Yeah, I find that so really refreshing to hear as somebody who, who lost, but well, my mum died and she was in intensive care and it was so very quick within 24 hours she was cardiac arrest and died. And to hear that though, from from a previous intensive care unit nurse and kind of it's making me think about the nurses who were looking at my mum's bedside and kind of thinking, because we did have a little bit of the we did it we weren't not not being told the whole story but could definitely tell there was some molly coddling going on here and uh, me being who, who i am i was like i can just see through your bullshit doctor like i can see it she's gonna die just tell me and it was when um the doctor in, in one of our meetings was uh, i've said this before, before in the podcast of you know um miracles can happen and i was like oh my god just say she's gonna die to just say it. Um, oh
1: gosh. Yeah. That really makes, it gives me like the chills. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Cause I really don't think people are, I really, and I don't think people are purposely trying to do that to us. I just think everyone, including healthcare workers are so uncomfortable saying something like that when that's all I think people need to hear um is like the truth or, or in and yeah 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 it's so <laughs> interesting uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I'm sorry that happened to you I'm glad you're someone who can kind of I'm sure it wasn't purposely done right well, I don't know Absolutely, but yeah but in you, general it's
0: like now and give grace and be like of course this man is looking and just looking at me being a 19 year old young girl and then my brother and being like oh my god how do I sell these two kids that their mum is Literally, she's got very little chance of surviving, and yeah, yeah. But that's really interesting to hear that too. I even for, for me, even the word before. I think before when I started doing the work that I do, and integrating myself into the into the work and with the people who work in this space, the word hospice used to scare me, and for a long while, and and the word palliative care did as well. It very much to me was just really daunting, and was like a hard bookend of this is it this is the end and kind of as soon as they go into hospice that's it they they're dying then and there and it's just um to me it felt like throwing in the towel and that was before and i think that was kind of my i don't know we didn't even have time to even think about with my mum with with a hospice scenario um but i i know and have unlearned a lot of that over the years and through conversations with people like yourself in in the space and through through conversations as well I've had I had a podcast recording with um a lady called Dr. Catherine Mannix, like last year, she's um, she's written some fantastic books here in the UK. She's incredible. And she's, we kind of spoke about off mic about how the word and the meaning of hospice has been misconstrued so much over the years. And I just kind of wanted to get your take on that of kind of how, especially in the US, because I know like hospice in US and UK is quite different and kind of I don't know if I'm speaking out of term here, is is hospice like a relatively, not relatively new, like in the past couple of years, but quite a new thing to the US? I know hospice in the UK has kind of been potentially a bit longer. Is that right to say? I actually don't know when (laughs) hospice in the UK started, but here it was around the 80s,
1: 1980s. I think we
0: have been hit. Yeah, I think when I was being with Catherine, it was not too far from that. But it's still a relatively yeah new concept, would you say?
1: To me, we need. I always say like we need to change the way we look at death and dying, not just with hospice. Like like I feel like it needs to start from like birth. I think we need to all kind of really reframe how we look at death because it's inevitable. That's it, at least for right now. (laughs) who knows right but like right now it is and so i think if we start kind of changing this view of like we should never die Mm -hmm. and we should never uh the worst case scenario is someone dying you know um i just think we need to try to somehow i think through education just through talking about it over the years hopefully it'll change but like i think that will that will also help change the way we view hospice because, to me, and I don't mean to. I think when I say this, it sounds cliche, but to me, hospice is about living, and I really mean that. Even though it sounds like something nice someone says, so you don't fear hospice anymore. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> you know, even <laughs> but, if that does, yeah, that's nice. Yeah,
1: it sounds. Cheap, it sounds. Cheap. It's, hospice is about living to help people like not fear it, but I really, I really mean that because there. are, because everyone has a death journey everyone some people might be hit by buses i mean that's graphic but i always say that you know you might be hit by a bus or you might die quickly from a cardiac arrest or you might die from a chronic illness or some kind of cancer that eventually slowly you die from and so everyone has their own death journey and if you're on the a journey where you kind of see it coming and so like that means you have a chance to go on a program like hospice that can help you live out the rest of your life. And the way it helps you is by really managing some symptoms that I feel like most doctors and agencies wouldn't be totally comfortable because of the fact of like they, you know, prescribing too much pain medicine or, you know, it's just, it's just a little more lax so we can actually get symptoms managed so you can live your life. It's a, it's a program to help you not, Be in and out of hospitals, not be in and out of urgent cares, in and out of doctors' offices and appointments. They come to you. They manage symptoms, so you can live out the rest of your life. So it's about living,
0: live with yeah, the time that you have left. Not yeah, Uh, that reminded me so much. I I think it's by the quote by a gentleman called I think I'm gonna I'm potentially gonna butcher the name Atul Gawande. (laughs) and um, apologies if you've ever listened to this podcast um it was something like and I, I I read heard this quote when I was on my death doula training about year, two years ago and it was it went along the lines of you know you were alive until your last breath um how can I help you to live and it's so true like that really flipped the script for me of okay yes this person is dying but until they take that last breath they're still alive so what are we going to do to make them most comfortable and um, enjoy this time that they've got left with themselves and with their loved ones we we're not going to stop assisting this person and and providing for them in whatever capacity that looks like until their last breath and I love that outlook a kind of that I think that was a real pinnacle point of me changing the way I looked at hospice and palliative care of um it's not just as soon as you're admitted like it's just I'll throw in the towel put them in a corner and just let them die out like it's not the case at all and if people
1: got on hospice sooner Yes. They actually, because I, I think a lot of times they wait and wait and wait and wait, including, include. and I don't ever want to seem like I'm like throwing like oncologists under the bus or, but I do think because we have this, this, no one should die ever. So let's do all these things to make sure they don't, right. They get on hospice too late. And I wish I could like quote the study, but um, like I, there has, there has been studies done that have shown that people who have the same diagnosis, Live longer on hospice. It's like live long, like live up to thirty days longer than someone who doesn't do hospice with the same diagnosis. Now, someone listening who's not used to being in this death and dying arena might be like thirty days. That's thirty yes. days, yeah. <laughs> but 30 but also days. it's yeah. thirty days, Yay. you know. And people think hospice is a death
0: sentence, you know. Um, Literally, that was me. Hospice is a death. that's me hospice was a death sentence. And actually, when you when you when you're kind of on your own death sentence anyway, yeah, that thirty days will think, oh yeah, well it's not five more years where you can do you like 30 days when you're dying and for your loved ones who are around you and just want that extra bit of time with you and if that can be pain managed like not 30 days of pure pain additional pain for you right exactly like, no it's, it's it,
1: we, we as we do things like you know we do things like high dose steroids and high like high dose things that like I guess if you weren't dying, you know, it probably wouldn't be the best thing for you. Right. Uh, but also, well, like how can we, like we're going to do what we can to make your life better in the moment. So, um, it's just, uh, there's like a fine line. Right. And, um, and, and we're just really good at managing symptoms on hospice, you know? So, um, if we can, and most people, uh, so many people come on hospice and feel better, For a long time because they were feeling so bad for so long you know they stopped the treatments they stopped getting chemo and radiation which usually causes symptoms not always but usually and we get their symptoms managed and they feel good for for time you know
0: gift what a gift um and obviously, julie throughout your your whole career you have been and and bared witness to many people's deaths is there any that have really stayed with you and I mean I'm sure that it's almost it's not to say like what's been your favorite death I find that yeah. really peculiar <laughs> but what's one that's been when I was when I interviewed Catherine Mannix Dr. Catherine Mannix Barnett in, in one of her books her book was basically a memoir about like some really um poignant case studies actually she'd, people she looked after in the final weeks and days of their lives and there was one in particular a lady called holly and as soon as i said her name it i look i'd see her face and it just transported her back to about 25 years ago and she was like wow she went holly like when wow. it took her back completely and i just wanted to ask you is there, as there any any that have kind of stuck up with you um for any particular reason
1: yeah, there's definitely patients, like, um, patient specific, uh, in the ICU. So there's some in the ICU, the one I'll, the one I'll talk about now, there's a bunch. So one, there's a bunch I could talk about. There are definitely patients that I can, uh, um, I like can just, uh, mean so much to me and have like changed the course of my life. So there's deaths in the ICU that have changed the course of my life because I advocated for them, um, without them even knowing, right, they're intubated and sedated and all the things. And I advocated for us to really talk to the family about what's happening with this person, right? And I feel like it changed the course of their life, it changed the course of the family's life. And it changed the course of my life, because I started seeing that I had a voice in this, and I could advocate for people um, in ways that you don't think are advocating, right? You don't, you don't learn that like advocating for someone's death is advocating. But it was like, enough is enough. We're hurting this person. What are we doing here? you know, this is, this is suffering. Um, but anyway, so that's, so those people have changed my life. But one that always sticks out to me is, uh, a Spanish fa- a Spanish speaking family that I had to use a translator with for, uh, months and months and they were young. So the patient was young. His wife was young. They had young children and, um, he was really, um, we did a good job of managing his symptoms, but he was really debilitated by the time I got there. So he wasn't like up and walking around and doing his thing. Um, but we were keeping him comfortable. Uh, but I, and I got really close with him, but I really got close with his wife and it was wild to get so close to somebody. Um, Through a translator, you know, and I would forget that I'm using different translators every time over the phone. And I would leave the house and I would say like, thank you to the translator. And you could hear like a deep sigh because I forget this translator isn't, you know, they're translating all of this hospice and death and dying stuff that I'm talking about and so much emotions. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, I didn't even think about
0: yes, what you're going like, through too.
1: <laughs> yeah. This is like each translator. I'm always like, Oh my gosh, thank you so much. <laughs> you know, cause you can hear their voice. Like, wow, what the hell just happened there? Um, but I remember his death because it was so sad, but it was so beautiful because the love that was there and his parents were there and his children were there and she was there and she was like laying on his chest when he took his last breath. And that stuff is sad. It is sad. I I, I understand that. And, uh, but it's also like the most love you can witness. Like the fact that I get to like witness how much love is in that family and how sad and devastated they are, but they don't leave you know, that they feel it and they're sad and they support each other. Um, because I've seen it other ways too, where like, you're so sad you leave or you're so sad you shut down or you're so sad you don't do anything. Right. Um, so to see that is like, I'll never forget it. It's, it's, it's breathtaking. And it's uh, to me, like what life is all about and how death can feel so sacred and so beautiful. And um, it's just moments like that, that are like, well, i oh, forever in my brain.
0: Hello, I'm Amber, your host of The Grief Gang Podcast, who is already in your ear holes as you are hearing this ad because you are listening to a Grief Gang Podcast episode. And I'm Poppy, the creator behind The Grief Case and previous Grief Gang guest a fair few times. We won't interrupt you for long, but we just wanted to tell you about our Patreon community, Unpacking Grief. Unpacking Grief is an intimate and exclusive community where we're quite literally unpacking grief. Through Patreon-only workshops, book clubs, live Q&As with faces and names in the grief space you know and love, we're getting through this grief stuff together. Join today and become a part of our wonderful and supportive community. Become a member and pay nothing, and we mean nothing, until the first of that month. Try before you buy. If you hate us, you can leave with no hidden fees. Joining details in the show notes. Bye! Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877 351 See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.
1: Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number.
0: Only at Sleep Number stores or SleepNumber.com. I love what you're saying then about the translator, kind of even having the barrier of language between you, you know, you're you're just humans looking at other humans and bearing witness to that this is a painful experience for us all. We've spent a lot of time together and we've got to know one another and this is really going to hurt. And yeah, how it is. It's so strange when you can, when when you know you've witnessed or you you you've been told of people having beautiful deaths and a good death, and some people just can't wrap their head around that. They think again, how can death be good? That is the end. That is the final bookend. It's not meant to be good. It's you know, especially in the UK, kind of like how we look at a bit like mourning and kind of the time. It's literally don't talk about it. Is something we are just. uh, almost like they feel like it's glorifying it and that if we talk about it it brings it on and it's just gonna the grim reaper is gonna come knocking at our door but actually when we do when we treat death like that it's a real disservice and to the people that we're looking after and whoever you know you are working in this field or you know somebody that you love and you're being a carer by kind of not even being open to the idea that this could be this could end beautifully and it could end peacefully
1: yes and like I was as you were talking I'm sorry to interrupt you but I I just think about how it's like you're kind of taught to like not show emotions if someone's sad make them not sad if someone's crying get them to not cry you know uh and I think we just need to stop doing yeah. that. <laughs> and we, need to like, now. we just need to stop doing that. Like, um, it's sad. So let's all just be sad. It's sad. So let let's let someone cry, um, and not try to make them feel better. I mean, so often my work is like, I don't do anything except for sit there and like, allow someone to just have emotions and not try to stop it. And at first it can feel awkward, you know, at first, because we're so trained to be like, here's a tissue or no, 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 it's okay. Oh, no, no. You know, and I, and I force myself just to sit there. And usually the longer I sit there, the more, the more comes.
0: Of course. Yeah, exactly. That barrier just mm-hmm. goes down. And I can imagine as well, that might've been a really hard transition for you. As you said, like you went from ICU of kind of fix, 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 keep people alive, keep their heart pumping. And then to go from, that's again, Catherine, because it was so mind blowing, but of that transition of when, cause you, when you're trained as a doctor, as a nurse, you are trained to save lives. And then when you're then like almost retraining to go, you're saving, you're sustaining a life. There's nothing more you can do here. It's a, I said, I asked, and I was like, does it feel like it almost goes against like everything of your training and everything in medical school that you learn of kind of, but then as well, just, yeah, the, the the learning of, I feel like as human beings we're so, whether you're a doctor or a nurse, anything, I think if you're maybe not, if you're not a sociopath or you are a sociopath or a psychopath, <laughs> you kind of are intrinsically wired. If you see someone you love and care for in pain, emotional pain, you want to fix that. You want to put an end to that. Why would you want to see someone you in love in so much pain? crying their eyes out like literally nearly being sick they're so upset why would you not want to stop that but then actually coming to the knowledge that putting a stopper on that has not helping you know it could do some people it's all relative here but um of of yeah of letting letting the emotions just be this is a really heartbreaking thing that has happened to somebody in their life whatever is washing over them just needs to pass through it needs to come by and pass through I think too
1: people seeing when they see that you're okay with it like I think um you know people want to take care of the other person you know like I'm sorry I didn't mean to like when they when they meet someone and probably it helps that I'm not their their relative right I'm not someone um close with them that I'm like this quote unquote like professional yeah. <laughs> i think that's funny but um that like seems to be comfortable with the fact that they have these emotions mm. um can help too and that just takes time too that takes time it took time for me just to be like oh i just
0: need to it's sometimes like you have to tell yourself you're like i remember i was i was i, was, I was like, just told myself just to keep your mouth shut just keep your mouth shut yep. as much as it yep. when you want to go like oh, but, ah, uh, and come up with the platitudes, I was just like, just zip it, just zip it, babe. That's the best thing you can do. I wanted to ask you, what what are some things about, like, the process of dying that may comfort those that are witnessing somebody they love die like for somebody who I know here on Grief Gang although we are it's almost like I'm on the other side and appealing to people who have passed through the death of their loved one. I know I definitely have listeners who have come and found the podcast and the online community before their person has died and are kind of almost just trying to read up, listen up just on kind of how to prepare themselves. I mean as we know we can read all the books and listen to the podcast but nothing will ever kind of truly prepare us for that day in our lives but what are potentially some things that may could bring some comfort to people for example I'm thinking of a few of like your TikToks that I love and when you've spoken about when people have seen their loved ones have come into the room and they're like my mum's here and for the family they're like oh my god it's happening now they're dying right now and they're going into the light and they're leaving us and panic ensues but actually knowing in that moment that that person's having a really lovely moment where this is again all relative whatever you may believe or may not believe um but actually you know, does it mean they are going into the light, or that they're just in a really nice place of comfort? And how comforting to know that their deceased mum or relative has now come to visit them in, in their final hours. So, some things like that. What are some things that could bring somebody comfort when the person is dying?
1: There are so th- so. This is I have this is what I've learned. Right in the first year year and a half of me being a hospice nurse, I remember being blown away by the bodies. So I have a bunch of things. Some seem a little more mystical. Some are like biological that are to me amazing. So because like you said, I was an ICU nurse trying to keep people alive. And what I saw in hospice over the you know, year or so of being a new hospice nurse where i was seeing death and not doing interventions, that was the most amazing year of my life. And it helped me not be so afraid to die because our bodies are built to do it. And our bodies really do take care of us in the sense of they make you not hungry. <laughs> your body makes you not hungry. Your body makes you not thirsty. Your body um, makes you tired, right? So you, so you might not have like the same energy you used to have, right? But your body is literally preparing you. So the more you can uh, accept that and not resist it, Family members too, because family members want to be—they're like, not eating if they don't eat. Da, 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 da. Like that, they, they you want—they want you to eat. They want you to drink. You should get up. You should go for a walk. And I get it, but what I see is that if you just let yourself be and listen to your body, it's a very natural, peaceful process, uh, for the most part. I'm generally speaking, there are different diseases, different things, right? But but also in seeing, in seeing how people die with specific diseases. As healthcare workers who work in hospice, we do know the main symptoms. We do know the things to expect, like that book "What to Expect When Expecting." I always think, like, "What to expect when I when expiring," yeah. which is awful, but that but like really, title. I feel like, like we can take
0: book title that was right there.
1: All right, everyone, like everyone is different, but like we can kind of see, we kind of know uh, how how it's going to go, so. So that to me is comforting anyway, because I want to know shit. I want to like, I want to know, right? Tell me what to expect. And yes, there's nuance and it's not black and white, but we can tell you some things that can just make you feel less anxious about what the heck is going to happen to me. You know, you're going to eat less. You're going to sleep more. You're not going to drink and your body's and, and your body is going to make you do that. And, and it's not going to hurt. So that's one. Two, most people do have visioning Envisioning visioning is what you were talking about, where you see dead relatives, dead loved ones, pets. It's not, I say relatives, but some people don't like their relatives. So it's not people you don't like. It's like, it's always a comforting thing. It's like, it could be an angel. It can be God. Uh, it can, it's usually relatives. It's usually people that you've loved and they come to you either in dreams or you visually see them uh, and usually, like you said, they're not on their deathbed. They're, it's usually like a few weeks to a month before they die. So you, like, that actually is something hospice workers use as kind of a guide. Yeah. And the more I witness death, the more I'm like, wow, it's okay. Mm-hmm. It's okay. and that, Like natural death. Our bodies really, you know, like things happen where, you know, you're not eating and drinking. So eventually your body will go into ketosis and ketosis is like a natural numbing. Like it it decreases pain. It increases euphoria. Your calcium levels go up. So you sleep a lot. Like there's just things that biologically happen just like in childbirth where like your hips get wider and things happen so you can birth this baby. Right. Uh, it's like that with death
0: yeah I've just as you were saying talking about how we're made like we're made to die quite literally but of how yes we're like for women you know we're, we're made to do this and kind of bodies hopefully our hips widen but even for like the baby itself and like baby knows how to push through the canal I've not had a child so I have no idea what I'm talking me about <laughs> me neither I don't know <laughs> this is what people tell me <laughs> i have not the faintest idea but I've heard they get ready to like push their little selves out and they know what they're doing before they've even step that into the world so it's before like, they even have consciousness or whatever it is right Yeah, you know to tuck down and push through that pelvic floor and get out of there and get out of town and so like we know how to in, in birth and in death we are made if we just listen if we don't put in all these things in the way to stop it and to confuse the natural process of dying and it is though for the fact as you said so there with the families of well if they're not eating they're not gonna have enough energy and and then that kind of feeds back in well it, you know, and then not- they're gonna die, <laughs> they're gonna die. <laughs> i think that, i think that that's the fear and then they're gonna die
1: and, and you're like yes, yes you know are. like
0: <laughs> yes
1: yes and so are you that's what that's, i try to that's why i want to change the way we look at like it's not it's like we don't just think about death when we're on, in hospice like to me i feel like we need to understand <laughs> in a general way that we're going to die me and you and all of us. Right. So this idea of like, what if they don't, cause that's what it usually is. They're not going to eat. If they don't eat, they don't have energy. If they don't have energy, they're going to die. You know? And you're
0: like, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of yeah, the end result. <laughs> yes.
1: And the whole point is, is that we're allowing the body to, to help to allow the body to die naturally. Yeah. Because the more we do that, the better it usually goes.
0: Yeah. Don't, you know? interfere. So. Don't interfere with it. Absolutely. I want to move on to kind of in a bit of a way thinking about anybody who's potentially listening, who's uh, thinking about potentially a career in hospice care and palliative care and what that's like, how two questions in one, how can, one ensure that they are taking care of themselves and like stepping in and thinking about this career and directly how do you look after you Julie like how do you look after the grief that you might feel for all the families and the people that you've cared for and how, how do you hold, from someone who's like me, who ha, has an online community, like, I'm like, I need to look after me, let alone someone who is bearing witness to multiple, as much as they can be, beautiful endings, really hard and emotionally taxing things. How do you look after you?
1: Girl, we can do a whole nother podcast on this. <laughs> I always think about how, am I going to start a whole nother TikTok about this? Because I have a boatload <laughs> to a say. Oh, that's a good
0: bronze. <laughs> <laughs> <for> yeah. <laughs>
1: There is, so this is another passion of mine. Like I'm, I have something, I always think if you have something to say, say it. So like I have something to say about that and dying. I have something to say about nursing yeah, yeah. and boundaries okay. and how to take care of yourself or anyone in kind of like a helping field. Right. So there is, so this is me personally. And I, and I realize it's a privilege and not everyone could do this. So I, I, but I still would encourage everyone who thinks they can't to think about thinking differently. So I don't work full-time as a nurse and I, and it's not because of social media. I was not working full-time as a nurse pre-social media. So how I do it. And and that has helped me. Like I think full-time, I still work basically full-time, but I work per diem, which allows me to make my own schedule come like work 40 or 50 hours a week if I want to work overtime and then work 32 hours a week and then work 24 and then work 48. Like I can, I can take more vacation. I can, there's like pluses and minuses. I have to pay my, I have to buy my own insurance. I have to plan for my future on my own. Um, and people think I can't do that because they're so used to not doing that. But I will tell you It is the best and I was scared to do it. I didn't have, I wasn't making money on social media and I thought I'm really making money on social media now, but like, I wasn't like I had some other revenue. I didn't. Yeah. Or thinking about another path. Yeah. No, I wasn't thinking about anything. I was just like, I know what I need to make myself okay. And this is what I need. I need, and not everyone needs that, but that's one thing I do. So I I feel like because I have this come and go-ness of it, it's easier for me. And I have, it feels like I have a little more control over my life and over my schedule, whether I do or not, I don't know, but that's <laughs> what it feels like. Yeah. And I have really good boundaries, really, really good boundaries. And, and, uh, I think for a lot of people, they would think it makes you not a good nurse or not a good team player. That's another yeah. thing a oh, bunch of administration cool. people will tell you, Yeah, you know, you need to, we need you to do this late admission because no one else can do it. No.
0: no. Yeah, I'm not
1: gonna I am not I can't. But if but if you don't do it, so and so has to do it. No, they don't. They can say no too. You know what I mean? Like the on call nurse can do it. Like like we can say no. I at least uh, at least now I would say some organizations would say no. You can't. Like some people, some nurses listening would be like, no, I can't. Then leave that organization because um, if you can, because uh, I work. I mean, I do work in California, so it's like known for good nursing so uh, and I and I'm unionized there's things like we're in a union but I would say you need to make your life so uh and saying no is really hard even now I I, I'm like boundary queen and I still (laughs) know that I'm sure people I work with administration uh some families might not think I'm I don't know I think when I'm there I'm there and I'm in it and I'm good and I I do do my a a great job right
0: Yeah, exactly. Yes,
1: but I know that uh, boundaries, people don't like people who have boundaries, not everyone, you know what I mean? And I do, I don't ever give people, my patients, my cell phone number. They, I don't work after I am supposed to be off. Um, I say no all the time to administration, all the time. I say no to other nurses. Like, that's hard. And you, and people, and you can get some slack. But what I've noticed is, Once they see you still show up in other ways, because I do, when I'm, when I'm there, I really show up and I really do help. It it inspires other people to have boundaries.
0: No, it is absolutely. With boundaries, it's, um, it's, it's, and especially in the work that you do, it's kind of because it can feel like life and death, but then again, reverting back to kind of, well oh they'll die it's like yeah that's again the point but not leaving someone just to die on their own but the worst case scenario they're thinking is well if this doesn't get done then the worst is going to happen it's like this is the work, the field that we work in and kind of in order for you to be the best that you can be as a nurse and to not burn out and to be when you are present at your best capability you have to have these boundaries
1: yes and I cannot take on an administration that is understaffed like that's and, and, and I, I think that's what I mean like I'm saying that at a risk of I know I sound like a dick right like or people can say like well that's not I don't know if I can talk like this can I talk like this on this oh, podcast okay, right geez. like okay <laughs> like it's like you're and, and I know then people will say well the patient suffers okay so again I'm not at all trying to make a patient suffer but I know that my life and my boundary and my being is important too. Exactly. And, and they and this place I'm working needs to figure that out because I can't run, I can't fix it all. And if I think I can, that's a, that's a issue that I need to, I need to deal with <laughs> internally because it's not, not every, not, not every problem is my problem to fix, you know? And, and I have to trust that my other colleagues can help, that the nurse on call can help, that the administration's going to figure it out because I can't do it and uh, I had to cut it off. And so, and, and then there's every once in a while, like I I won't I won't do that and I will cross my own boundaries for whatever reason. I just just talked to the family on the phone and they called back and I'm not supposed to work. But like, you know, like sometimes I'll cross it because yeah, you, I want to.
0: But that's, that's your choice. Yeah, it's your choice. Your own boundary, and that's okay. We all have to push. If we want to push our own boundary within remit, but when when externally it's being that boundary is being constantly pushed against, you will eventually go. Fuck this! I'm walking, and that's what we see, especially here in the UK. What we're seeing here—you have compassion fatigue. Yeah, it's compassion fatigue. Oh. Oh. But then
1: you're, you're. I mean, I, me in the ICU. I was not because in the ICU where I worked in on the East Coast, we didn't, we weren't unionized. We didn't, we didn't, we weren't like allowed to have boundaries. We weren't, we weren't allowed to say no. No, they, um, they and I and I, I couldn't yeah, work like that. You. <laughs> yes, I couldn't work like that. So if you're in a place of, uh, what I'm saying is, I guess if there's some people who are in a place that is like that. I would honestly reconsider reconsider working somewhere else, doing, doing, doing something else. Like it's not because that's the only way this this is the long winded. That is how I stay sane. That is how I do it. I um, have boundaries and I like love and do my work when I'm doing it. And I don't when I don't. And there's a clear boundary. Brilliant.
0: No, that's a really,
1: really. That's really hard to do, but I had to, I had to do it. Otherwise I couldn't
0: do it. Yeah. And I think potentially for some people listening and thinking that maybe like, they might not have even known that could have been an option, thinking like they just, oh, no, I've, I've trained to be a nurse, so of course my full-time job is going to be a nurse, like da-da-da-da. But actually thinking, no, it doesn't have to be. You can still enjoy being a nurse and the work that you do, but it doesn't have to be your f- every single day, especially working and dying, in death and dying. Like when you're living and working in death and dying, it, c- it becomes a lot of what you consume and kind of when are then the moments that you need to live? But to wrap up, Jude, I'd love to ask you kind of just to, to conclude all of this and with all of your TikToks and further educating like the world. It's just your TikToks are amazing and it's been so wonderful just to see it go so far and reach so many people and educate quite literally the world. What does good end of life practice look like to you? What are the key components to that? What What does a world with good death and dying education look like? Look like.
1: Oh my gosh, that's such a great question. I think it starts with the world accepting and acknowledging that death is inevitable. So, like the whole—that's like a big thing, right? But like, I think that will change everything, right? So it's this idea that we can accept, including me, uh, that I am going to die one day, and if I see it coming because I happen to have a disease where I know that it is to ask, ask for help, be able to accept help people to help. Right. So like using all of the things, like I always say, end of life is kind of like all hands on deck. You know, you need, if you have family that can help you family, hospice support, community support, you know, getting help and allowing people to help. You. So this idea of like knowing and accepting and acknowledging that this is happening, asking for help, getting help, accepting help, and um, and then allowing your body to be the guide. Really listening to your body, not resisting, um, not resisting death, which is is hard. I mean, I don't know if I can. We're human too, you know. So it's like it's going to come and go and be messy and not messy and. And uh, kind of accept all of that too, like knowing that it's just hard sometimes and um, being in it, right? Emotions are hard. Like I always say, if I get diagnosed with something terminal tomorrow, just because I'm here talking about death and dying doesn't mean I'm not gonna be human and have sadness and anger and fear and then, then acceptance, then back and forth, just kind of accepting all of that. It's all about acceptance, I think. That's where it starts and then we go from there we
0: start from there wonderful way to end julie thank you so much for joining me today on the grief gang podcast it's been an absolute delight and i know the listeners will have taken away so much from that um so thank you thank you this has been great thanks for tuning in this week i truly appreciate every single person who listens to the show. By doing so, you're actually helping more people find the show and in turn support themselves. You can keep up to date and become part of the Grief Gang community by following us on social media platforms such as Instagram, Facebook, Twitter and TikTok check out our website and blog too and if you fancy you can sign up to our newsletter where you will receive regular emails and first to knows on events and workshops all links for the above are in the episode footnotes big love look after yourself and i will see you next week